Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Madison, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMadison.com. Whenever God wants to change the world, He begins by setting apart a people. This is the story of the Old Testament, which we heard part of in our reading this morning. But in an act of gracious love, God, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Bible, liberates the people of Israel from slavery. He carves out the Hebrew people to be his own people and he to be their God. Deuteronomy 4.20 says this, Remember that the Lord rescued you from the iron-smelting furnace of Egypt in order to make you his very own people and his special possession. That image is of a forge. So think about the movies with like the guy in the mask and the big thing, and he's like making a shield or a helmet or a sword or whatever. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's iron smelting. I've never done iron smelting myself. But that's what God is talking about for Israel. I took you out of the iron smelting furnace. So he's saying through fires of suffering and salvation, he shaped Israel into a holy nation to be a kingdom of priests. He sculpted them out to be his. And God says in the Old Testament that he was doing this carving out, this iron smelting of the people of Israel, so that through them the world would be blessed. Like he was making them into an instrument through which he would change the world. But when the people of Israel came out of Egypt, they were not yet fully set apart. They were no longer building pyramids under the whip, but their minds and their hearts were still full of Egypt. Think about it. The Hebrews had no Hebrew scriptures at that point of the Exodus. They had no law. They had no special revelation from God, and they'd lived in Egypt for hundreds of years. So most likely, it's safe to assume that on their way out, even crossing the Jordan River, they still fought like Egyptians. They acted like Egyptians. They might have even worshipped like Egyptians could have been one of the most cruel parts of their slavery. So how did God not just change their life situation, but change their hearts and renew their minds? By taking them to the mountain of the Lord. When they cross the Red Sea, it doesn't end there. They make a beeline for Mount Sinai. And it's there, which is what we read, what Charlie read, God... He reveals to them the law, the teaching, the commandments. He reveals to them the truth about himself, the truth truth about them, truths about the world. God says, I'm setting you apart. You no longer can act like Egyptians or any of these other nations, but walk in this way. And it is Israel's, did you hear it? Hearing of and obedience to the word that completes that transformation in them as a people. Moses says in Deuteronomy 4, this is such an amazing passage. He says, see, I have taught you the statutes and rules. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the peoples. Who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? 
So when the Israelites heard and obeyed the teaching of the Lord, they actually looked different. They worshiped differently. They literally kept time differently. Their weeks looked different. Their days looked different. They thought differently. They thought about family much differently. They thought about sex differently. They thought about morality and politics differently. They thought about justice and the poor and farming differently. Is that enough differentlies? I could keep on going. They thought differently. In fact, following the law made it impossible to blend in. That was part of its point, is it made you stick out. So people could see and go, ooh, that guy worships Yahweh. He's an Israelite for sure. You could tell a mile away. The high points of the Old Testament are when the people of Israel hear and obey the teaching, and they're set apart, they're transformed, they're carved out, and the world is blessed through them. The tragedies of the Old Testament are when they don't and they conform and decay and darkness multiply. For the next three months, we are studying the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And it is all about Jesus carving out for himself a people. Jesus shows up on the scene. If you're familiar with the, the Gospels, he's God in the flesh and he calls his disciples out of their old lives, it's really clear, out of their own personal Egypts to follow him. Peter's called out of fishing, Matthew from tax collecting. Enter your story here. But their decision to follow Jesus was not the end of the process. When they started to follow the Lord, their minds were still full of the old life. So chapter 5 begins, if you're on your gospel page, by saying, Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. Just like in Exodus, here we have the Lord taking his new followers up on the mountain to hear his teaching. And the essence of his teaching in this sermon is about distinction. Distinction. It's about Jesus, about how Jesus' people are to be different than the rest of the world. I read a guy this week who said that you can kind of summarize the whole sermon in, in chapter 6, verse 8, when Jesus says, do not be like them. He's making a distinction. Christ Church is a new community. We've been a congregation worshiping together for about a year. We've been called out in Madison. We've been called out of so many different areas of our own individual lives, and I'm so excited for the next three months to go up onto the mountain to the Lord, to hear his teaching, and to be carved, to be put in the iron-smelting furnace of the word of God, and to be made into something beautiful through which the world will be changed. Does this sound good to you guys? I'm so excited. Look in your, uh, your sermon page. This is something we might say or do uh, each week while we study this sermon, but this is Isaiah 2, verse 3, and it's just so good. But I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to pray for us. It says, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask, we ask that we would hear and, and listen 
Lord, give us ears to truly hear your word this morning. Lord, I pray that your call to come up and hear you speak on the mountain would indeed transform not only us and our lives and our hearts and our minds, but also the world around us. All for your name's sake. Amen. Amen. So today we're beginning with the first 16 verses of chapter 5. And they're deeply significant as an intro to the sermon because they're all about how Jesus' people are to relate to the rest of the world. And for our purposes, there's so much in here. I just want to pull out three main ideas um, about how the Christian is to relate to the rest of the world. And I did give you blanks if you're a note taker on the sermon page. In fact, I gave you five blanks, which is really special. Um, Okay, number one. How does Jesus teach us from the very outset? Here's the distinction. Here's how the Christian is to relate to the rest of the world. Number one, different than the world. So in that blank, if you're a note taker, different than. Like I just said, uh, the theme of the entire sermon, I think, is distinction and difference. But there's something about the Beatitudes, which are these first um, First verses, verses 3 to 12, which if you've never read them before, they all begin with a blessed, blessed are they, blessed are they, that are just so insanely upside down and different from anything else in the world. It's almost like Jesus kicks things off by saying, just to begin, the kingdom of God plays by different rules. The Beatitudes are probably the most famous part of the sermon. They're so deeply poetic and mysterious and challenging. Um, And I have to confess up front, we are not going to fully plumb the depths of these this morning and in this study. And that's for two main reasons. One is um, we wanted to get this entire sermon in in the next uh, in Epiphany and Lent. And we just couldn't spend tons of time on this in order to get all the other stuff in. Also, I preached on this almost, I think, literally a year ago. And you can listen to that. And there's lots of other stuff on it. But I'm sorry. I love the Beatitudes as well. But we're at least going to do a flyover, okay? So grab your bulletin, and I'm gonna, let's, read, let's read them together. Um, what page is the gospel page on? Nine. Page nine. And when I read these, I want you to listen to distinction. I want you to listen to the upside-down nature of what Jesus is teaching his disciples with. So verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, hunger and thirst for righteous the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Where else in the world do all those values come together? Do you know of any other place where people are like, oh, that perfectly describes these people? Who do you know that values poverty, whether it's spiritual or material? When's the last time you heard a TED Talk on mourning? When's the last time you heard a friend or like a late night talk show host talk about desiring purity without laughing or throwing up in their mouth? The only place all these fit in, 
persecutions, meekness, purity, hunger, and thirsting for righteousness is in the kingdom ruled by Jesus. It's the only place. And that's because only Jesus was all these things, right? He was meek, poor, pure, peaceful, merciful, hungry, reviled, persecuted. And yet he was comforted. He was satisfied. He saw God, did he not? He will inherit the world, for his is the kingdom, as we say. So the kingdom of God is upside down. It's different, and Jesus is calling his followers into the difference from the start. Different, role, different rules, different values. He calls them to difference. But different from whom? This is the really important question, and Jesus answers it. Uh, he makes it really, really clear in the Sermon on the Mount. On the one hand, different from pagans, Greece, Rome, non-Israelites. And on the other hand, different from religious hypocrisy. So yes, Jesus calls his followers to be different from the pagan nations in every way, morality, politics, worship, values, the whole thing. But then he turns right around, and you'll know this if you've read it before, and we're going to study through it. He also says, you must be different than religious people. And by that, he means hypocritical, self-righteous Israelites. Essentially, Jesus is saying his disciples are to be distinct from both progressives and conservatives, from both secular and religious. Whoa. So you know what that means? That means no one heard the Sermon on the Mount and thought, oh my gosh, Jesus is describing me. I'm so glad Jesus is teaching other people to like finally be what I am. Like this is amazing. He's describing my tribe. I was in a coffee shop this week and I heard somebody behind me say, I just can't believe I have to say over and over and over again what is so obviously right, you know? I was just like, whoa! You, none of us can do that to Jesus. Like, oh my gosh, I'm glad. You cannot listen to the word of God and not be called out. Every one of us starts in our own Egypt and every one of us in the call to discipleship must take the journey to the mountain to be changed. Amen? Nobody gets a buy on that. To hear the call of discipleship is to hear him call you to be different than your family, than your neighbors, than your friends, than your culture, the whole thing. 2020 is going to be a crazy, crazy election year. Our culture is strained and partisan as it is, and we haven't even gotten to the thick of it. Jesus' call to different means that the kingdom of God does not fit into a partisan system. The church does not even fit into one particular nation. Amen? Amen? It's a different citizenship with different values, and it's serving a different master. Are you willing to be called out? You cannot really go into the Sermon on the Mount without first confronting Jesus' call to be distinct. This is the call of, of Jesus, to be different than the world. That's number one. The next two are qualifiers, and they are both deeply significant. That brings us to number two, visible to the world. Number one is different than, number two is visible to the world. Jesus did not call his people up on the mountain to be different and then say, okay, stay here, hide. No, what did he do? He sends them out. He says, go back. So verse 14 in your gospel reading, you are the what of the world? Light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, 
but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is calling his disciples to be clearly visible to all around him. In our broken and fallen world, in our darkness, Jesus came as light. That's what John 1 says. And as Caitlin taught us a few weeks ago, now Jesus passes that light to us. And in one sense, Jesus teaches that if we're being transformed by the gospel, you just can't help but shining. Notice he says, a city on a hill can't be hidden. You're not going to be able to like tamp down or hide the light of Jesus if, if you're bearing it. But then at the same time, he also exhorts the people to take a step toward visibility. So there's also a let your light shine, which is a commandment, right? Put the lamp on the stand. Go into dark places. Relate to the rest of the world. They're called to be. So how is the Jesus follower supposed to relate to the rest of the world? They're called to be utterly different and utterly visible. That means just as folks in the ancient world could point to an Israelite and go, oh man, that guy worships Yahweh. So someone should be able to point to you and say, oh, she is definitely a Christian. You could tell from a, a mile away. Different than the world, visible to the world, but then we must hear the last qualifier, at least to begin. And here's number three. Good for the world. Utterly distinct, utterly visible, and utterly good. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. And in verse 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your judgment and feel extremely ashamed. No, that's not what it says. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your legalism and be deeply grossed out by Christianity. No, no, no. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your Christian t-shirts and feel really awkward. <laughs> what does it say? So that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus' salt analogy here is famous, and admittedly, it can be kind of hard to pit down. I remember the first time I heard somebody say salt of the earth as a kid, and I grew up in a Christian family, and I was still like, what? You know? Um, if you read people on this, like the great holy grail for like deep Bible nerds is to really crack the, the salt thing and you get into like sodium chloride and classical literary history and stuff, but it's pretty simple. Um, salt is a preservative. It stops decay, it adds taste. You don't apply salt to destroy something unless it's ice on your driveway or slugs if you're a kid, but Jesus is not talking about either. You add salt to things to enrich it and to preserve it and to bless it. Add some salt. Christian distinction is to be good and enriching and preserving wherever it presides. Jesus does not say, you're the bonfire of the world. I'm going to set you on fire and you go out there and you just burn it. He also doesn't say, you're the honey and the sugar of the earth. I just want you to make everything go down sweet. Salt is neither. It's both preservative and it has a kick. So it means it manifests itself in justice and servant-heartedness and good works. It also manifests itself in preaching truth and challenging decay. Remember that other time the Bible says, let your, let your speech be seasoned with salt. And like light, Jesus says, you are the salt. 
So if you're being transformed by Jesus, you're just going to be salty. It's just going to be happening. Um, as an example, my wife and I were watching this thing earlier this week about England during the Industrial Revolution. And if you know anything about England in the 19th century during the Industrial Revolution, if you weren't a part of the 1%, it was a miserable, miserable time to be alive. Um, working conditions were awful. Pollution was absolutely insane. Wages were abysmal. Children were forced to work at their own physical expense. It was a hor horrifying situation. But there was a man in North England who grew this vast textile industry, but who out of Christian duty and out of a heart of what Jesus is talking about and out of his saltiness, uh, wanted to be a source for good. So he bought, he built houses and baths and hospitals and schools. He built gyms and churches for his employees and townspeople. He enforced uh, like rules of health and hygiene and loved literally all these thousands of workers who worked for this man. And when he died, uh, as he had kicked against all the corruption of the Gilded Age and industrialism, industrialism 100,000 people, all of them his own workers and just the town, because they loved him so much, came out to his funeral to line the streets. 100,000 people. That is what it means to be salty. I feel like that's just such an awesome example of the kingdom being good and preservative for the world that is decaying. And guess what his name was? Sir Titus Salt. <laughs> Come on. True story. Guess what the place he built was called? Saltaire. Oh, my gosh. I was joking with Marissa. I was like, there are no awards or Oscars for, like, sermon analogies. But that was one of the best I've ever had. Just mingles so good. Jesus calls us out of darkness and decay, out of our own personal Egypts, and then he calls up on the, us on the mountain to hear his word and to be changed. And how does he teach us that we are to relate as Jesus' people to the rest of the world? Different than, visible to, and good for the world. So you could say he calls us to a visible and beneficial distinction. Now, as I've meditated on this, I think we encounter this call from Jesus. We will be faced by one of two temptations, and I gave you two more blanks in your uh, sermon page if you're a note taker. And depending on your personality, uh, I, as I worked through this this week, I was deeply convicted about both of these areas. Um, but my hunch is you will probably hear one and go, that's me. Um, and there are these. Number one, to be salty but invisible. Number two, to be visible, but saltless. Visible. Being salty, but again, but let's start with the first. To be salty, but invisible. Being salty, but invisible is loving the distinction of Jesus' teaching. It's fully following him in your personal life. Going against the grain of the world. But either from a place of fear of being shamed or of a place of, out of a place of condescension or disdain or judgment towards those who aren't Christians or like you, you never go into the world. So no one has ever tasted your saltiness. This is never spending time, if you're a Christian here, with folks who aren't Christians, whether they're your neighbors or coworkers or peers. This is the temptation to stay on the mountain and build a little salty bomb shelter so you can shelter yourself from the darkness and decay of the world. But the cross is powerful.
because it is visible. Amen? The cross is powerful because it is visible. That was a point of God. It was to be public. Jesus says, the Son of Man must be lifted up, meaning so everybody can see it. Why? That all may be drawn to him. Likewise, the community of the cross is only powerful when she's visible. Jesus says, do not put your light under a bushel. Don't do that. A city on a hill can't be hidden. There was a time in the third and fourth centuries, this might sound insane, but the mistake people were most often to make when they read stuff like this in the Christian community was to just take it way too far to the extreme. His call for purity and poverty and meekness and all these things. And so they were like, I don't want to get married. I don't want to do anything. It was the huge trend. There was Twitter. This would have been the thing that would be trending. And they would go out into the desert so that no, nothing could spoil them. They could be all, all alone and untouched to preserve their holiness. There were even guys, those were, there's guys called the Desert Fathers who did that. There were even people called the Stylites, who are hermits who literally built a pole in the desert that they could sit on the top of so that nothing could get to them. Dudes would do this for decades. But St. Basil, who's an early church father and he was an early bishop, has this beautiful thing where he asks to these people who are committed to just getting away from the rest of the world. He says, how shall you show humility if you have no one in comparison with whom to show yourself humble? How shall you show compassion if you cut yourself off from the many? In the desert, whose feet will you wash? And I love, in comparison to whom will you be last? Ah, isn't that beautiful? Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a guy I'll talk about a little bit later. He's a modern theologian. He put it this way, flight to the invisible is a denial of the call of Jesus. Full stop. So you can't follow Jesus and remain invisible. His call is a public call. He calls us up on the mountain to learn, and then he sends you out. But the other temptation is just as sinister, and that is to be visible but saltless. This is spending loads of time out of the salt shaker of the church, as it were. Um, you're very much in and a part of the world, in your home, and your work life. You love it, but no one knows you're a Christian. Or if they do know, they really can't tell much of a difference between them and you. And this could be, be because you're afraid of being rejected or reviled like Jesus. It also could just be a sign that you're more conformed to the world than the kingdom. Whatever it is, Jesus directly addresses the problem. Verse 13, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. The kingdom of God is powerful because of its distinction. That's where the good stuff is. If the church conforms or is silent, the salt loses its saltiness. Um, in my last job, which was not a part of a church, uh, my best friends were of no faith or of different faiths, and I loved them dearly. And, uh, but I noticed when I would be at work or when I would be hanging out with them, I kind of created this like two-faced version of myself, um, which just wasn't honest to my like, actual lifestyle. So some night I would be at a small group with my church, or I would be studying some Bible passage, and it would be blowing my mind, and I'd be like, oh, I love this so much. And I would wake up, and I'd think about it in the shower, and I'd think about it on the way to work. 
And then I would see my friends, and they'd be like, Scott, what's up, bro? What'd you do last night? And I wouldn't necessarily lie, but I would omit all of that. And I would just say, oh, not much. And then we would go on and talk about pointless things. But eventually I realized, oh my gosh, I'm visible, but I'm saltless. So one day I tried this crazy experiment of just being honest about my life, not forcing anything on anybody, not proselytizing, but just trying to bear witness to like what actually my life was like. So I would go to work and a friend would be like, hey bro, how are you today? You know, what'd you do last night or this morning? And I would go up and say, well, this probably sounds crazy, but I'm studying this book in the Old Testament called Ezekiel and it's blowing my mind and it's changing my life and I've like just been thinking about it all day. What did you do, you know? And often than not, they'd be like, well, that's weird. Well, I did this and we would just be friends and it was fine. But at least I was bearing witness to what actually what God was doing inside of me. Now, when I started to do that, did I start, stop getting invited, invited to certain kinds of parties? Yes. Did I get left out of conversations sometimes? Absolutely. But did people start to hear about Jesus to be a kung fu evangelist in their life? People do not need you to be a kung fu evangelist in their life. People do not need bigotry or condescension in, this, in the name of Jesus. But listen, they definitely do not need your silence. Amen? They definitely do not need your conformity. They need the salt and the light of Christ. And Jesus calls his people to be bearers, to be salt and to be light for that purpose. If you are communing with the living God, you are salty. Jesus is saying, be who you are. Like I said before, 2020 is just gonna be nuts and our world is deeply torn. There's a lot of darkness and there's a lot of decay in the world. And all of that is represented in our beloved city of Madison. And Christ Church, what an exciting time. What an exciting time to be the church. Is it not an opportunity? I think the church, if you read church history, is most powerful when the world is most fractured. Is when you see the light and you taste the saltiness. It's amazing. We're called to be different than, visible to, and so good for such a blessing to our city. And for the next three months, that is exactly what we are going to learn from Jesus. Um, Jesus does not stop here. He's literally about to go on and preach a long sermon that covers like everything in life. And he's going to say, here's what people do about this. This is what they usually think about this area of life or society. No, 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 no. Here's what, because of the gospel, you're going to do. And here's what people typically do about this. Religious people, they just do this. They pray this way. Not, not from you. I want you to be distinct. People care about this this way. He's going to divide and teach and carve us out through the rest of the sermon. So that's, this is kind of a setup to the next three months. How are we called to be different from right and left, secular, hypocritically religious? What are the actual ways that our church is to be different, visible, and good? This is what we are eager to hear and obey. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.